When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. G-A-L-D-E-M G-A-L-D-E-M This song is good. Welcome to another season of Growing Up with Galden. Inspired by our book, I Will Not Be Erased, our stories about growing up as people of colour. My name is Charlie. I'm the editor-in-chief at Galden. We're an award-winning company committed to platforming the voices, perspectives and the creative work of women and non-binary people of colour. I'm Natty Kasimbala. I'm a writer and former editor and longtime contributor at Gaudem. Each week, we invite guests to respond to old diary entries, letters, or text messages from their younger selves. The point is to nurture important discussions about growing up. You can find Growing Up with Gaudem on Apple Podcasts, the Acast app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we are joined by the brilliant Dr. Christine Chukinska, whose creative practice is situated at the meeting point between contemporary art, fashion and textiles. Her work explores the relationship between cloth, culture and race. Her PhD, Colonised and in Reverse, the Creolized Aesthetic of the Windrush Generation, was awarded by Goldsmiths in 2009. In 2016, she delivered the TEDx talk, Disobedient Dress, Fashion as Everyday Activism. 
Christine has worked as a creative director in the fashion industry for over 30 years. She has designed collections for iconic British brands such as Laura Ashley, where she became the principal designer in 1995, and Margaret Howell, where she worked alongside Margaret as senior designer during the late 90s. Dr. Christine Jakinska is the curator of African and African diaspora fashion at the V&A and lead curator of forthcoming exhibition Africa Fashion, celebrating the irresistible creativity, ingenuity and unstoppable global impact of contemporary African fashions. So, Christine, it's so amazing to have you on the show with us. I'm really excited to get into a conversation that I, I don't really think I've had before in terms of the intersections of like culture and race and fashion. So I guess I wanted to just start out and ask when you first fell in love with textiles. Oh my goodness. I think I'd have to say as a child, I've got memories of being taken, probably dragged across the road by my mum. Her friend, Mrs. Watson, across the road, literally across the road from where we lived, would make all our dresses. And so I've got early memories of maybe being um, seven, six or seven, and being, you know, standing with my arms out, my mum and Mrs. Watson pinning fabrics on me and having individual garments made and getting really excited going into school and being the only person with that particular design. So my mum used to design these ideas based on, I don't know where she got her ideas, probably um, catalogues or club books, which is what we used to call them then. So I think that's where she got her ideas She would do the design and there was a fabric shop in Gloucester where I grew up. There was one very large fabric shop in Haberdashery and she'd always buy fabrics there. And I remember kind of being mesmerised by the shelves of rows upon rows of fabrics in every colour. But mum would always choose the fabrics, design the garments, and then we'd go across the road to Mrs Watson who had one of those treadle machines, you know, those Singer sewing machines that made that kind of clunking sound as she was stitching we'd we'd go and get jabbed with pins you know yeah I feel like were they kind of ubiquitous in certain households when you were growing up those types of machines I think so absolutely mum didn't really sew but she had her own machine but anything that was for a special occasion she took us over the road to have it sort of properly made by Mrs Watson who made all of the local garments for whether it was kids or or the women in the neighborhood in in Gloucester where we grew up and it was very much part and parcel of everyday life for me and my friends to have garments made and to to be familiar with all of these sewing machines and sewing kits and equipment you know yeah it was always I remember I had a brief dream where I was like I'm gonna become a fashion designer and we got the only only woman that we knew who was a family friend who who was a fashion designer she kind of took me into her studio and like showed me how to do patterns patterns and stuff but I just didn't have the patience unfortunately um (laughs) but but yeah anyway I wanted to say congratulations for your upcoming show at the V&A and I was wondering if you could tell us any more about it thank you so much so the exhibition is called Africa Fashion and it will open in June 2022. And what we want to do with this show is to showcase the work of contemporary designers and historical designers from the mid 20th century. And we want to consciously celebrate what I think is a scene that is overflowing with creativity. It's an innovative scene, it's a groundbreaking scene. And I feel that it's a scene that's changing the geography of global fashions. So we'll start with the mid-century era. And I deliberately wanted to use the independence and liberation years as a jumping off point 
probably because of my interest in fashion, culture and race, as you've raised. And so for me, those years, it's the, the moment where you see those wonderful studio photographs by people like Sadu Keita. And it's, it's about agency and self-presentation and zest for life and the sense of freedom that clothing can give you. And that really ignites the creative spark within, I think. And so we start there and we look at the vanguard designers. So women like Sade Thomas-Farm, amazing designer, known as Nigeria's first fashion designer. We look at men like Kofi Ansa from Ghana. We look at Chris Seydoux and his use of Bogolan. And one of the really exciting things that we did when we launched the project in January was to launch it with a public call out, inviting our audiences to contribute garments, textiles, photographs as a whole photographic portrait section, for example. Because for me, it was really important to think about, yes, high fashion, made to order, but also everyday dress. Because I think that clothing is such an important part of African and African diaspora culture. You know, it's a way of speaking about ourselves in the way that we want to be seen. And so everyday dress for me is as important as designer wear. So that's one of the reasons why we wanted to start the project with a public call out and make it a people's exhibition, you know? And I'm really important to myself and the team. One of our main guiding principles is the foregrounding of multiple African voices and perspectives, of course. So it's very much written from that point of view or those points of views. We want to use fashion as a catalyst to tell many stories about the richness, the diversity of African history and African cultures. I really loved how you kind of positioned it as a way of telling the wider history of the diaspora and what's happening on the continent. And I don't know whether this is just me and my music head, but I feel like if we cut that back to present day, there's obviously a real like surge of African music and African art and culture that's like taking on the globe. I was interested in if you had any predictions or thoughts on where the, what the future of African fashion is like and what we might be seeing in generations to come. I mean, I think what we're already seeing now is almost a, I would describe it as an Africanization of the fashion world, where Africa is becoming the centre of the fashion world. And so I, I feel that that's what's beginning already. I think it's already here and that will continue. I think that African fashion creators are leading the way, particularly in areas like sustainability. It's ground zero for many of the designers and creators that we've been speaking to. So I think that there is this shift in geography that's happening. And I think that that's what the big change will be, not necessarily around aesthetics or predictions on what we'll all be wearing, because I think that fashions everywhere are so kind of, there are many, many different ways to be fashionable, many ways to be black, many ways to be African. I think that there is always going to be that focus on the individual and individual aesthetics. But I think that what we'll continue to see is the rest of the world looking to Africa to see inspiring ways of doing things differently. Mm, I definitely, I see that. When you said the Africanization, the first, the first thing that came to my head was stuff like Beyonce's Black is King, for example, which we've, we've talked about a lot on Galdem, and just like ways in which like artists like Solange and people who are kind of these like future-facing artists bring in 
like, yeah, just we we are able to weave kind of mythology as well as fashion and textiles and different kind of crafts into new art. Yes, that's right. I think what we're seeing, one of the things that I've really enjoyed so far since joining the museum last June are the conversations that I've been having with the creators primarily on the continent. And there are certain threads that keep coming up and this idea of past, present and future seen together seems to be a common thread. And this idea of building a future in which we all thrive and having this expanded idea of what being African might mean, might be, and working from the place where it's an expanded we and an expanded us. Um, and it's, it reminds me of Nkrumah, actually, who said something like, I'm not African because I was born in Africa. I'm African because Africa was born in me. And so there is that, that kind of expansive view of Africa and Africans that keeps coming up. But one of the things I'm mindful of is that whilst I want to celebrate the African fashion scene, the history of it, the present day, what people predict for the future, I want to do that consciously. So I'm very mindful of trying to use terminology or speak in the way, speak about designers in the way that they want them to speak about themselves. So it's, it's kind of less about me and more about the creatives, if that makes sense, and more about foregrounding voices, whether it's a wearer's voice or a designer's voice, trying to really tune into that to find ways to represent that. Yeah. I'm interested, maybe this is a slight side note, but like, how do we make sure to not homogenize when we're talking about Africa as a continent, which has got so many millions of people living on it and so many vast differences, I'm sure, in textiles and, and fashion. That's right. I think for me, the story that I wanted to tell, I knew that I wanted to tell a story of abundance and I knew I wanted to shake up those old, outmoded artificial boundaries between North and Sub-Saharan or East and West. I wanted to break down those barriers between the old Anglophone and Francophone. And I know that all we, we can ever show is a glimpse because within one country, there are numerous cultures and histories and languages. But that's part of the story that I'm trying to tell, this idea of abundance. But whilst telling people that actually this is just a glimpse, you know, the, this is just a glimpse of something that is really, really vast. So at the moment, for example, in our planning, we're representing over 20 countries. And so we're not making life easy for ourselves. But again, that's been deliberate because I want our audiences almost to be overwhelmed by what Africa can be and what it can mean and to shake up this idea that it's this single thing, it's a single story, it's a single entity. It's about diversity, it's about variety, it's about something, it's something that's eclectic because it's so varied. So that's part of the story. Yeah, abundance, I like that. Abundance, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> cool, so we're going to move on to your extract and I'd love if you could give us a bit of context for this before 
reading it out. I'm not even sure when you wrote this, so excited to hear about it. Yeah, I mean, it was it's such a lovely thing to have been asked to do. And uh, it was quite hilarious, though, because my first thought was an old school report, which I know I've got in my spare room, but it's kind of buried under boxes, archive boxes and books and magazines. And it would have taken an archaeological dig to get it out. But this, <laughs> this school report <laughs> has the line, and I think I was about eight, and the school report has the line, Christine is creative, take her to museums. Oh, that's so, that is so nice. It's really sweet. And it was my form teacher. You know that you get the report and then there's a final comment. And it was so my form teacher, I must have been about seven or eight. And it was Mr. (laughs) Reese. And he said, Christine is creative. Take her to museums. (laughs) But I, I couldn't dig through the boxes, so I couldn't get the actual object. So what I did do instead was to pull out an old notebook from 1998, so before I went back and did an MA, before I went off and did my doctorate, before I got into museums and back into visual art, I joined various creative writing groups. And so the pieces, the two extracts are from an old notebook from 1998, which incidentally coincided with the 50th anniversary of Windrush. So there's a kind of a Windrush theme, if you like, to one of the extracts. And I think it's because if this was the starting point of me delving into my own family history. So these are the early moments of me researching dress from an African diaspora perspective, thinking about race, thinking about culture. The notebooks are from just after I'd left I used to, well, as a designer, I worked for many British brands. And it was just after I'd left a British brand. And someone had said to me whilst I was there, it's so great that you're head of design because, let's face it, you're not exactly an English rose. Which is indeed controversial. However, it kind of kick-started me thinking, what on earth did that mean? And who am I, this young woman that was born in England, known for designing English-style fashion, and yet someone says that to me. So so these extracts and the the creative writing moment in my life came out of that. Christine, if you want to read your extract, we're ready for you. Lovely, thank you. So in fact, I'm going to read an extract from a short story that was written when I was on my creative writing course at the Mary Ward Centre. And actually, this one that I've chosen is from early 1999, And it's from Bernice's story, and it's an imagined story, Bernice getting dressed on her wedding day in Greenhill, Jamaica. Miss D had already begun heating up the hot comb on the stove. Soon it was ready to straighten Bernice's unruly virgin hair. The comb sizzled and hissed gently as it engaged with the tight black frizz that had been carefully primed with rose-scented hair grease. A sweet burning smell surrounded the two women. Once Benice's hair had been transformed into a series of shiny straight tufts, Miss D set about skillfully curling each section with a pair of small iron tongs that made a rattling noise each time they were taken out of Benice's head and returned to the fire. A further layer of grease was then applied to every ringlet. After a short time, 
Benice's scalp was covered in row upon row of tiny coils that were crisp to the touch, but glistened in the light of the open kitchen door. The metamorphosis had begun. Next, Miss D helped Benice into her brassiere and girdle. Benice tugged at the foreign garments that promised to give her a sleek, maiden form silhouette. Instead, little pockets of stubborn flesh oozed their way out from beneath her bra straps and the seat of her elasticated pants. Benice screwed up her face as Miss D rearranged her reddening cleavage inside the conical structure. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Her semi-exposed breasts were then dabbed with liberal amounts of lavender talcum powder, the excess rising up to the ceiling like a perfume smoke signal. Thank you so much for reading that. Um, such vivid imagery. And I think I can almost like smell the hair burning <laughs> from, my yes. own, from my own memories. So first off, I just wanted to ask, like, how does it feel to read that back 22 years later? It does make me smile. And I, I have a really sort of warm feeling about Benice. You know, I empathise with her. 
And I think you're right. I remember having my hair pressed. And so, and I remember mum having these tongs that did clank about when she put them on the stove. So it's a very personal story. And that image of Benice's transformation, it was based on, um, and I must have been quite young, it was based on a memory of watching my mum getting dressed for a PTA meeting. And I must have been quite small because I was kneeling on the floor by the side of her bed and kind of watched her literally change shape, you know, because she had these undergarments on that gave her another shape. There's an almost like armour type of ritual to, I guess, what you've described and to a lot of, I think, black women who have existed in the world. <laughs> and I, I guess I wanted to talk a bit about how what your own journey is like with with the kind of issues you touch on in terms of hair and clothes and your presented image and whether that's something you've you've grown into or ch has shifted over time I think it that's a great question I think it really has shifted over time maybe if I start with hair because I think for me one of the most pivotal moments in terms of the way that I put myself together was the decision to locks my hair which was quite a major step because when I was coming up you know respectable young grammar school girls didn't locks their hair you know and I was the respectable grammar school girl and so it was quite it took me years to decide to do it and I would look at other people's hair and I would long for a natural hairstyle but somehow didn't have the courage to do it and I think it was because I'm from that generation you know being in my late 50s I'm from that generation where it was as though nice girls didn't do that and I carried a lot of that baggage with me and so I think and it's actually fairly recently that I did locks my hair this is I've worn my hair in locks for about maybe 11 years 11 12 years so I think it was it was bound up with issues around respectability or things that I'd absorbed as a child. And, and this idea that you have to fit in because, of course, that was my parents' generation. My parents came to Britain in the 50s and I think they brought with them those very conservative views, you know, about the way a woman should look and of the way a woman should act. Yeah, I think that's so interesting in terms of visual presentation. And I think that a lot of us who are descendants of, of Windrush can definitely sort of empathise with that. I certainly know, even from my mum who did her own sort of radical hairstyles, she's also, she's in her, her early 50s. No, actually, no, she's not. Oh my goodness, she's in her late 50s. Wow. <laughs> Sorry, mum. <laughs> um, but she shaved her hair off in the 90s. But she definitely still, you know, there's certain things that she will say to me, you shouldn't wear that, you shouldn't do that, because people will think you're like this. And I think that definitely comes from that thing of respectability. So really interesting to hear you sort of ruminate on it and how it sort of progressed for you over the years. Do you feel like you're completely over that, those ideas of respectability? Do you ever still struggle with that at all? I think, um, well, interestingly, I think that I'm getting better, but it's been a long journey. But strangely, I think that, being in lockdown, I think I've, I've, I kind of please myself more about the way I look. I'm not quite so bound up by what people might see me as or how people might read me because I'm not sort of mixing in lots of different circles. I'm kind of here in my own home, so I'm pleasing myself. And so I've, I think I've almost become a little bit more playful 
with clothes. And I particularly used to find, particularly working as a designer, and some of my peers who were designers found this, you almost develop a uniform because you're so focused on dressing everybody else around you, you develop a uniform. And I've realised I've kind of developed this uniform of wearing dresses. And I've had people say, oh, you're so feminine. And I always push back and I think, no, I'm not, you know, because I wear them because you just put the one garment on and you're yeah. good to go, you know. So. <laughs> yeah, I get that. I've been wearing a lot of jumpsuits in lockdown. That's been, the, you know, you just put it on and then you're done. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a similar thing. It's comfortable. You put it on, you're good to go. I'm definitely a lover of the flat shoe because I always feel I need to get around quickly. I've never been the sort of woman that likes heels or anything too restricting on my body because I like to have a sense of freedom of movement. So I think that that's part of my style that's been developed over the years. So maybe some of this clinging to respectability is gone. I think with age comes this sense of freedom. I think we all know sort of older people that really don't care what other people think you know and just do their own thing and look their own way and you know one day I will appear at work with pink dreadlocks because I will have cast aside any worries about what people will think support that no that sounds amazing but I remember though when I was young I was a new romantic and that I did have a pink hair phase but it was that spraying dye that you could then wash out so my mum never knew oh my goodness yeah I feel like I haven't seen that many images of like black new romantics like from that era I was there there. (laughs) well not really there weren't many of us but I was there with my frilly shirt my pink hair that was when I started making clothes actually when I was 15 I was a new romantic and I used to make things you know on the Friday night to wear out on the Saturday night oh my god I love that I, I mean I think I mean, you can comment on this probably more than I can, Christine, but I think one of the sad things I feel like we've seen in recent years is like the death of subcultures somewhat and like the homogenization of what like teenagers seem to wear. Although I did see a group of emos in the park the other day and I was like, oh, they're bringing it back. But yeah, <laughs> nature <wonder> is healing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes, I know what you mean. I think there is this kind of look, isn't there, that a lot of young people have and young women have and and you know very much that kind of Kardashian look and I always get that wrong is it Kardashian, Kardashian is it but Kardashian? I like how you say it you make it yeah you make it sound a lot more classy yeah in it <laughs> yeah Kardashian look so there's there is that look that a lot of people have but you know a lot of my sort of my friends who are younger than me they're very much part of that whole kind of Lindy Hop swing dancing vintage scene so I think the people that surround me are the people that I wouldn't say they're necessarily subcultures, but they have a very particular way of putting themselves together. They're not necessarily mainstream dresses, as it were. I put it that way. So that's probably what I'm more familiar with. So I guess I've carried on that kind of art school, wanting to be different, wanting to be part of a subculture or part of a club. I've carried that with me throughout my life. And it's taken on different guises. That's so interesting. And then I guess we've touched on you making your own clothes and your future and then your experience as a designer for English labels. But I guess it would be interesting to know how that like subversion translated to what you were creating and what up until now and what inspired you to go and get your PhD in this subject as well. Yes, I think as a designer, I'd always worked for other brands. so I'd never had my own label. 
But I used to have sort of quiet moments of activism, which people that know my other work saw, but people that didn't know my work outside of the industry probably didn't realise. So, for example, if you looked at any of my portfolios or any of my fashion illustrations, I would always draw them on black figures. And no one ever really commented. <laughs> but that was my sort of small act of rebellion, was to always draw them on black figures. So I think that that's one thing that I always did. Did you channel that into the designs that you were also making? And, and then also, I'd love to just hear more about your PhD and the studies that you did in that too. So I think in terms of my design, I don't think I actively wove things into the physical designs. I think that as, as creative people, you always bring your culture, your heritage, your background with you. So it was probably there, but in a subconscious way, I would say. And then in terms of the PhD, it was very much on the back of the creative writing course. So it's a combination of things that kind of aligned that allowed me to then go off and do the PhD. And so I was doing research whilst I was on the creative writing courses and creating characters like Bernice. And there's a whole series of characters and dress was featuring in every short story that I wrote. And I found myself doing more and more research into Windrush. It was the 50th anniversary. It was everywhere. Celebrations, talks. I went to absolutely everything. Poetry readings, reminiscence workshops. I just attended everything. Took myself to the newspaper archive in Collindale, looked at the old newspapers to understand how people were received on arrival. But also I started noticing what people were wearing. And I still had my colleagues' words ringing in my ear. It's so great that you're head of design, because let's face it, you're not exactly an English rose. And so these things kind of came together and aligned and made me question so many things. And I took myself off and did an MA. And actually, I did a teacher training course and was so inspired by being in a learning environment. I went off and did an MA where I started to think more actively about the relationship between fashion, culture and race. And why did those Windrush men look the way they did in their kind of Savile Row meet Zoot Suit outfits? You know, yeah. this creolized aesthetic, this coming together of many things. I've often thought that Jamaica is almost like a landing strip where many cultures come, collide and whiz off somewhere else. And you get this wonderful kind of creolized aesthetic, creolized culture in the Caribbean more broadly, but Jamaica particularly was my area of expertise. And so I started to delve more deeply into why those men looked the way they did. What did we mean by Englishness? What do we mean by Caribbeanness or even Jamaicanness? And I looked back at dress and enslavement. So what was dress like? in plantation society on Jamaica? What do people wear? How did they put themselves together and individuate themselves? Because people did. Yes, people were allocated a certain amount of clothing, usually at Christmas, often just one item of clothing in a rough coarse linen. It might be a coarse linen shirt. And I was really struck by that kind of thing and struck by the fact that young men up until the age of 14 were only given a shirt to wear. And when that shirt wore out, or when that garment wore out that you got at Christmas, you were left to just work with nothing or in rags. 
or you sold produce and you kind of, we would call it upcycling, right? We call it upcycling now or customize. So people would upcycle and customize the garments that they had, or they would style something with, you know, a cast or form a military jacket and create their own creolized aesthetic. And so that was a really, really interesting beginning when I did my MA. And I got so into it that I, I wrote an enormous thesis. And my supervisor said, this is more of the, the beginnings of a PhD, Christine. Yeah. It's not really an MA anymore. Wow. I'd never met anyone that had done a PhD. I didn't know anyone that had done a doctorate. And so really it was my MA supervisor that said, you know, you've got something here. And I was so into it. I was discovering who I was. I was discovering more and more about people like me. And then after that, I moved to Goldsmiths. And my PhD is in cultural studies, but it's still carried on the work of looking at the Windrush moment and really unpacking that. You know, why did people look? Why did we look the way we did? Where do these notions of respectability come from? And what does it mean today? Yeah, so, so interesting. So I wish I'd met you when I was at Goldsmiths. <laughs> and oh, were you I, at Goldsmiths uh, yeah, too? Yeah, yeah, I oh, was. Wow. And I worked on a, on a book about the Windrush generation and their descendants. And it's so funny because I, I spoke about so many different themes and things. but And fashion did come into it, but not in relation to like so much the the history of it going back to slavery it was more in terms of like what did the windows generation wear and yeah it didn't really make that link so it's really fascinating to hear you talk about it and and yeah just thank you for your work like <laughs> it's 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 incredible it's my pleasure and it's it's been such a joy you know sort of discovering caribbeanness discovering the way that clothing can transform and the way that clothing can be a way of speaking, particularly when you feel you have no voice. It's a way of, you know, you leave the house intact if you've sort of spent time putting yourself together. And you mentioned um, this idea of armour. You know, it's rather like armour, isn't it? When you, we know how we feel when we've got our favourite outfit on or we've got something new. You know, we walk yeah. a bit taller. I, yeah, I think you're right. That culture of expressing yourself in those ways is still so rife within all of our communities. And it's something that is instilled by even like the generation of my parents as well. Um, and I think throughout Africa and the diaspora. So, yeah, it's so incredible to think about it in terms of the cultural history behind it and why it's kind of like a coping or survival tactic almost. Well, I, I almost think it's even more than that. I think it's I mean, I almost want to say it's an overcoming. It's beyond coping and survival. It, it's about showing the world who you know you are. You know, it's about saying, much as the world might want to reduce me or make me feel invisible, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. You yeah. know, I know that you can see me and I'm going to give you something to look at. You know, yeah, it's absolutely. that, that you yeah. often see, particularly with young people, don't you? I'm going to give you something to look at. Yeah, for sure. And I think just kind of going back to what you said about how it helped you as an individual kind of understand yourself. I often sort of contemplate this like in my head, like why it was so affirming for me to learn more about slavery when it's such a obviously traumatic and 
tragic time in the history of black people. But I think it's found in those moments of, of resistance because that's, I guess, what fashion was used for, right? And so even though there is so much tragedy in there, this what you said about boys having to wear rags, but obviously the juxtaposition is that, like, people had to find it in ingenious ways to to dress themselves against all odds. That that is empowering, I think. But I wondered if you had anything else to say on that sort of topic. Yes, I mean, I for me, I think it's about personhood at a very basic level. It's about saying to the world that, listen, I am human. You know, the world might try to tell me I'm not. <laughs> the world might try to tell me I'm something other than human or I'm subhuman but actually no I'm human and I respect myself and I respect you as well but I respect myself and you can do that I think through the way that you dress you know and I, I've often thought of the work that I did as a designer as professional play because you're playing with fabrics you're playing with oh, cloth so nice. playing with silhouette it's about self-empowerment and it's about assertion isn't it an agency can be reflected through clothing. You know, I've always felt that we all have this kind of creative inner spark that gets almost extinguished in some of us um, after we've come through that kind of school period where there are those people that are told that they're creative and the people that they are not told that, so therefore you can't be. But I sort of feel that we all have some kind of a creative spark within us. And if we understand the power of dress, then that creativity can be brought to bear on the way that we put ourselves together and we can present ourselves as integrated people, you know, powerful people, particularly as women. I think sometimes as women, we, we hide our power or we give our power away, whereas I think that our power can come through in the way that we put ourselves together. And I don't necessarily mean it's about being super uber fashionable. It's more about listening to what makes you feel good, you know, if wearing a big floral dress makes you feel good and makes you feel like you, wear that big floral dress. You know, if it's about baggy dungarees, wear those baggy dungarees if they make you feel more like you. So that's what I mean by this individual inner creative spark that can be brought to bear. You know, it's, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, going to hold on to that one. So going back to your extract... What advice do you think you would give to your younger self who was writing that beautiful piece of creative writing and, and still sort of figuring out her place in, in the world of fashion? I think I would love to say to myself, keep doing what you're doing and stand tall and allow people to see that spark, that creative spark that you have. You have it. You know, you do have it. Allow people to see it. I think that that's what I would say. I think that's amazing. And I wrote down that quote that you mentioned from the report that is now fossilised in the loft of Christina's creative, take her to museums, because I think it speaks to what you were just saying, but also the full circle moment of your parents being urged to take you to museums to now curating exhibitions in one of the most like prestigious museums in the country. So I guess my final question is, what do you think your younger self would think of where you are today? I think she would just go, wow. I don't think she'd believe it. <laughs> Amazing. That's the desired response, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think she would, yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much, Christine. This has been amazing. It's been lovely. It's been lovely <laughs> yeah. chatting to you both. It really has. Thank you so much. So Christine is 
incredibly knowledgeable and wise and it felt like in the best of ways it felt like I was listening to like a really brilliant like lecture almost at, oh my in parts gosh, yes. on like yeah on history of, of fashion in, in Caribbean so that was that was really great and I really appreciated it it was also really lovely just like to hear about some of those early memories of you know being dressed up with the singer honestly so yeah <laughs> it was so like like tangible the way that she described it felt like something out of a BBC series that was yeah the, yeah she should do if she doesn't already she should do documentaries. oh my gosh <laughs> yes and the, the thing I found the most interesting is like I've never been I think there can be misconceptions or certain ideas around fashion as kind of elitist or you know as this thing that has this prestige and if it's not like luxurious or and if it doesn't cost a certain amount then you know it's not good or it's not meaningful and I think I loved the way that she was able to kind of like contextualize and create such a narrative around fashion and it got me thinking about like the ways in which we in obviously way less extreme circumstances use fashion as a tool of coping I think I've always been a person who's like hated to go with the mainstream and like since I was a kid like pulled away from you know like like certain brands or having the same items as other people or trying to dress like in a way that was a statement and now that I think back to it I think it was a way of trying to cope with like being an outsider and kind of trying to like step into that and, and own it rather than like feeling like I was falling short of some other measurements you know so it's, absolutely yeah. it's kind of again I think this speaks back to something we talked, talked about in a reflection or in fact no I think it was like mid podcast a couple of sessions ago in terms of our reactions to being outsiders because mine was like I wanted to try and get that get I, me the Capstan bag yeah the thing is I could never afford it so I was always it was like you know I would I would kind of like walk past Jack Wills with my head down being like <laughs> like Oh, like secretly I would love <laughs> I a bit of this some, some of this but like I could it wasn't an option but the thing was that my parents are very fashionable people and so for them you know they were very disappointed with my attempts to be more mainstream mm. but you're always I think you're always butting up against something aren't yeah, you yeah like, you're going to push or pull yeah 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 so it's it's really interesting and you know I love talking about fashion even if I wouldn't regard myself as being very fashionable so yeah Christine fab yeah, that was awesome. I also definitely had like a Bista Village, like go and get the discounted Jack Wills and Abercrombie <laughs> vibe for a bit. Yeah. And then I just realised, like you said, I just think my parents were like, that's just stupid money. Like I'm not yeah. buying you £90 trackies for no reason no, that you're going to grab. And then maybe mine was a reactionary response, you know. I did once own a Jack Kills t-shirt. There was like a brand that was like made in Edinburgh that was supposed to be like subversive. And I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Anyway. This has been an II Studios production. Thank you so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can sign up to become a member at gal-dem.com for access to exclusive discounts with our favourite brands and partners, early access to tickets for Galdem events, an advanced copy of our annual print issue, and so much more. Make sure you're following us on all major social media platforms at Galdem Zine for the latest independent journalism, or visit our website, which is gal-dem.com. Galdem has a book, I Will Not Be Erased, Our Stories About Growing Up As People Of Colour. It's available in all good bookstores or online. If you loved this episode of Growing Up With Galdem, be sure to subscribe, rate and leave a review. We'll catch you on the next episode. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.